How many of you have ever had that moment where you've been in an argument with somebody and they're making a lot of really good points and maybe they say something you don't know how to respond and then all of a sudden you're in the car or like the next morning you wake up and you got the perfect retort to say back to them? Anybody ever have that? Like you just, oh my goodness, I could have said this. I have that all the time and that's why I have a, a kind of a, an admiration for people who are really, really good at responding back to people. Like they just say the perfect thing. They got the perfect little way to chirp back at somebody. That's why for many reasons, Winston Churchill has always been a very, very beloved person in my family. If you don't know, my dad was adopted by an amazing couple at birth and this couple was actually a really neat couple. My, my grandfather was a World War II vet who met a pretty British girl when he was over in England and said, hey, want to get married? And she was like, well, are there people dropping bombs on the U.S.? And he said, no. And she said, sure, why not? So she came over. They adopted four wonderful kids. And in that process, my dad really developed this sense of World War II through the eyes of a little girl who had to move out of the city to avoid bombs dropping on, on her home, had to put dark paper over the windows so no light could get out. Just all, all the all the things. My, my grandmother's stories were amazing. But because of that, there was this love for the leadership of Winston Churchill, this guy who stood up in a moment and, and was, was such an amazing, amazing leader for that particular time, but also the realities of Winston Churchill. If you've ever studied Winston Churchill, you know what I mean. Like, he, 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 he was a... He was a a great fighter, but not just with the people he was supposed to fight. My dad would always refer to him as kind of a, an outside dog that was brought inside because there was a robber in the house. And then the moment that the robber was in the house, they were like, okay, go back outside. That's kind of how he was. I mean, he, he was not the best for civilized company. And so he would often have some of the, I think, the best retorts to people, the most amazing cutting quotes. I mean, the guy was an amazing orator. And so he would say things about people that were just, oh, my gosh, you go back and read them. And you're like, a leader of one of the biggest countries in the world said that? Are you kidding me? So here's a few quotes of his I absolutely love, at least the quotes that I can actually say in a sermon. One of my favorites was he was talking about another leader that he didn't get along with too well. And he said, he is a modest man who has much to be modest about. He, he also was quoted as saying, I'd rather argue with a hundred idiots than have one agree with me. He also wasn't exactly the best when it came to... Uh, fellow uh, co-workers who were women and oftentimes many of his disputes were with women and so there was another person in parliament that was a gal that had some not nice things to say about him one day they were in a debate and she said mr churchill if i were your wife i would poison your coffee to which churchill responded if i were your husband i'd drink it that's a quick retort right there and this was probably the worst one but i think is still kind of funny he had, this, he had this moment where he was going back and forth with a female opponent who said, Mr. Churchill, you are drunk and disgustingly drunk. To which Churchill responded, yeah, I may be, but you're ugly and disgustingly ugly. And in the morning, I'm going to be sober and you're still going to be ugly. What? That's, what, that's public, right? He said that in a public debate to somebody. 
And so the thing is, as I read those quotes, I mean, Churchill is the definition of having the right thing to retort back to somebody. And there's so many times in my life where I just love to have those words to just throw back in somebody's face. You know, the moment somebody says something to you and you can just turn around and swing it back at them. You're like, yeah, take that. The problem is, as much as I admire that, the more I study Jesus, the less I see that kind of behavior. The more I look at Jesus, I find that my natural tendency to want to be the person who can sling back the perfect retort doesn't actually match up with the Bible that says, like a sheep to be slain, going to the slaughter, he never opened his mouth. He never considered equality with God something to be gained from, but instead humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. See, last week we talked about the fact that we're called to have the same mind as Jesus Christ. That in our relationships, we're called to value others above ourselves. And we talked about humility. We talked about unselfishness. But today, Peter is going to continue on in 1 Peter chapter 3, talking about how we can win in relationships. And so today I want to talk about how we can win in relationships and how we can look like Jesus more and more in our relationships with one another. Because the fact is, I think we all need this in some way. Because all around us, there is conflict. There's, mo- there's opportunities for us to get in fights with other people. There's opportunities for us to throw stones at one another. There's opportunities for friction in the church, in our families, in our workplaces. I mean, am I alone in this? Anyone else see this? Opportunities for friction in your life. Disagreements with people. Moments where things don't always go so great. And so today, Peter's going to teach us some really key truth for working through conflict and relationships. And he says this. In verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Have you ever noticed the fact that in our world, it seems like you can... Try as hard as you can to be around people who are like you. But some way, somehow, someone who is opposite of you will just show up in your life. Like that that term, opposites attract. Have you ever seen that in your life? I mean, like in marriage, right? You know, the person who wants to be on time all the time always seems to marry somebody who doesn't know what time is. Right? Or, or all of a sudden the person who likes to stay up late all of a sudden marries somebody who's an early riser. It's just, it's a thing. And even in our world, in workplaces, in friendships, it seems like opposites seem to always attract around one another. Even in a political sphere, it seems like the moment one view seems to be working well, all of a sudden there's another view that comes up. And it seems like we always have this continual ability to create conflict in our world because it always seems like opposites are always attracted to other viewpoints. Which means this. I have found in my life that opposites attract, but here's the key for today, is that opposites don't have to attack. 
Opposites can attract, but they don't have to attack. That's why he says here in verse 8, Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. I love that phrase, be like-minded. See, the thing is, being like-minded does not mean that we all think the same. Being like-minded does not mean that you and I have the exact same thoughts. What I have found in my life is that being like-minded means that we agree on the really, really important things. You know, my marriage, my wife and I are like-minded in that we have common goals for our relationship, for our marriage. Does that mean we think the same? Absolutely not. In the church, when we are all focused on Jesus as the most important thing in our relationship with Him and others having relationship with Him, following the Great Commission as being the most important thing, we get along a lot better. The problem I have found in my world is that oftentimes we make other things the most important thing, so we end up not being like-minded. I mean, the thing is, if we're really focused that Jesus is the answer, we can get through just about anything. I mean, I, I have friends who love Jesus with all their heart, they believe He's the answer. And they believe that to, to fix things in the world, outside of Jesus, they believe Jesus is the answer, but they believe the, the, the answer for today is another government program. Right? That the, the government would come in and have some sort of a program that will fix everything. And then I have friends who love Jesus with everything, think He's the answer, and they think the opposite of that. They think the words that Ronald Reagan once said, the scariest ten words are, I'm here from the government, I'm here to help. Right, And the fact is, in the midst of that, when we actually believe that Jesus is the answer, we can get through anything. We believe that Jesus is the answer, we can have a relationship in the midst of anything when we're like-minded. So today I want to talk about three building blocks of being like-minded that we see here in this passage. First thing he says is, be sympathetic. Be sympathetic to one another. fact is, if you're sympathetic to others, there's a lot less likely that you're going to be pathetic in the way you treat other people. There's a story of a husband and wife that were having some problems, so they went to marriage counseling. It took weeks. The wife would never open up. She just was so shut down. And so finally, after a few weeks, the the guy who was the doctor there that was working with them, he finally said, he said, all right, that's enough. He went to the wife. He embraced her in a big hug. He grabbed her by the face and kissed her on the cheek and said, You are a beautiful and strong woman. To which suddenly everything changed. She just lit up with a huge smile and began talking and sharing about all the things that were going on in her life. And just it was she was a completely different woman. To which finally the therapist turned to the husband and said, See what that did for your wife. That's what the kind of love and affection that your wife needs every single day. Can you do that? To which the husband responded, well, I mean, I can get her here on Monday and Wednesdays, but I don't know about the rest of the week. You know? The thing is, that's pathetic. The thing is, what Peter's talking about here when it comes to sympathy, it's a concept that some of we know, how, how do we be sympathetic of others? Well, the fact is, sympathy is something that starts from curiosity. You ever look at somebody and go, what's wrong with you? Like, you ever have that thought, you ever look at somebody and go, man, what, what is going on with you? Why do you act that way? The thing is, sympathy is something that can change everything in our life. In The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, Stephen Covey talks about that the, one of the key things to being a successful person is that successful people will seek to understand, 
or excuse me, yeah, seek to understand before they seek to be understood. They seek to understand others before they seek to be understood by them. And the fact is, when you do that, when you seek to understand others, it can create these amazing aha moments where you go, oh, that's why they think that way. That, that's why they do that. You know, the next time somebody does something in your life that you don't like, maybe you ask the question, why is it they feel that way? Why is it that they do that? Because one of the things I have found in my life is that every single thing that a person does, every moment where they, they do something that I'm like, why in the world would you do that? It is always explainable. It's not always right, but it's always explainable. There's always a reason for every person to feel the way that they do. And the fact is, when we start by understanding that they have a reason for it, we can start, when we start by being sympathetic, we can start to ask the question, next time we're in a fight, start to ask the question, why do they feel this way? And the, the reason for that is because as you become sympathetic, it creates validation for people. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this, but I've had a lot of moments where people will come to me and they've been angry and frustrated with me. And they've said things like, man, I, I, don't, I don't know why we're doing things this way. Or I don't know why this is happening. And I've had moments where I've sat and listened to them, heard what they had to say, and made it clear that I wasn't going to change what I was doing at all. But I sat there and I listened to them and they walked out ten times better. Because I validated them. I said, I, I'm listening to you. And even though I wasn't going to do anything different, I was like, no, I'm sorry, I'm still going to go this way. Me listening and having the sympathy to go, tell me why you feel this way, changes everything. And the first thing we have to do is be sympathetic. But then the next one, he says, is to love one another with compassion. In, in First Peter, uh, in the NLT of this, it says, love one another with tender hearts. Love one another with compassion. Love each other with Tender hearts. One of the things I, I love that phrasing, tender hearts, because so often my heart can become hard. When, I, when people have a problem with me or a disagreeing viewpoint, my heart can become hard and my only thought can be, well, they have to be wrong. Why can't they see how right I am? Yeah, yeah, forget them. Can you believe they said that that way to me? Can you believe they thought that about me? My heart becomes hardened, but when our hearts become tender, suddenly we can start to have sympathy. Suddenly we can start to think about it from their perspective. And we can also start to see it no longer as just their problem, but our problem. One of the things we have tried to do in our marriage is, my wife and I, is to not have just, I have a problem, you have a problem, but we have problems together. It's kind of like the, the wife that came home one day to her husband and said, Honey, I have a problem. And she said, well, the husband said, well, hold on, honey, honey. No, no. You don't have problems. We're married now. So we have problems. Your problems are our problems. And so she said, okay, um, we wrecked the car. You know? The thing is, in our life, when we can view it as we have problems together and we are on the same team, it changes everything. In the church, in our marriages, in our relationships, it's not you have a problem or I have a problem. It's if we really are both following Jesus and Jesus is number one, then suddenly we have a problem that we need to fix because we want to have unity. We want to be of one mind. We want to have great relationships. So suddenly we're working together to work. Because what I have found in my life is that when I have problems in my relationships, what is so often the issue is that I'm not valuing the relationship more than the problem. 
I see the problem as more important than whatever that relationship is in our life. And instead, if I flip that and start to view the person as someone of value, then suddenly I want to work to find a solution together. It says in Romans 12.10, to be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. And that brings us to the third thing that, for, that Peter says. He says, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Be hum- Proverbs 13.10 tells us that pride only leads to arrogance. See, the biggest problem I have in relationships, I talked about this last week, the biggest problem I have in relationships is me. The biggest problem that I have to take care of in relationships and problems is me. When I have a problem with somebody, the main thing I'm responsible for is me. Because as I've read scripture, I get the idea that when I go to heaven, God's not going to go, okay, tell me what they did to you. Like, tell me what, what, you know, when you blew up at that person, tell me what they said. I get the impression that God, the Bible says that every careless word that comes out of our mouth, we're going to answer for. I think it's actually going to be me talking about me and what I did. Not about what everybody else did. Andrew Murray writes this as a definition of humility. He says, humility is a perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret. And I am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. Humility is the moment where we... Act as Jesus did, as it says in Philippians 2, that he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Therefore, God exalted him. Humility is a moment that says, God has everything in my life. Jesus says, blessed are those who are spiritually poor, which is basically an understanding of understanding that there is a God and I'm not him. Humility is, the, is understanding that there is a God in charge of all of this and it's not me. So when I get into an argument, when I get into a fight, it's not that I don't value myself. It's that if I'm truly humble and walking with Jesus, then all of a sudden, really, if I'm truly humble before God, there's nothing you can really say to me that should be able to tick me off. Unfortunately, that's not always true for me, but I seek every day to look more and more like Jesus so that when people come at me and say things to me, that hurt me or make me angry, I can bring those to God knowing He's the one who has it all. The thing is, when I actually become humble in my relationships, it changes how I view things. It allows me to say the three important words in relationships. Three of the most important words you can be able to say is, I was wrong. I am sorry. Bible says in Proverbs 28 that anyone who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. See, when we learn to be able to say we're sorry, we no longer have to demand perfection of others or even ourselves. When we become humble, we understand what it means to be able to, to not feel like we have to have perfection of others or have everyone else has to be completely right all the time. We can even have what Peter describes in verse 9. Not repaying evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. 
Because of this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, does this mean other people are right or other people can just stomp all over you? No, he calls it evil. But the question is, do we pick up stones and throw them back at people when they're thrown at us, like the rest of the world? Or do we come drop them at the feet of Jesus and say, God, I'm going to let you take care of this. See, when we're humble, it goes back to what we talked about last week. When we're truly humble, it's not about us. It changes conflict and relationships because when it's not about me, you can't tick me off very much. Now, here's the deal. This is great. I mean, this is great stuff. But how many of you go, okay, Gary, but what about real life? Like, how does this work in real life? How does this work in real relationships? And I want to show us a relationship today that I think this is matches up perfectly with. Because as I read it in Scripture, I add a lot of context that's not there. But as I read it in Scripture, I can see how this, this, this conflict could have been something so much more. Because did you know, sometimes godly people can disagree. Sometimes godly people who both are filled with the Holy Spirit, both following God, can have moments where they still have conflict and they just decide, you know what, I don't want to be around you right now. Actually, that actually happened in Acts. And what I love about Luke as he wrote the book of Acts is that he put in all the nitty-gritty stuff. He talked about the highs. He talked about some of the lows. And he has this moment, though, where he talks about two people. He talks about Paul, who is the artist formerly known as Saul, who had gone and been persecuting Christians and been doing all this bad stuff when God suddenly changed him and brought him to him as a minister of the gospel. And now there's this other person that's with him named Barnabas. And Barnabas is, is actually a pretty integral part of the story because, see, Paul tried to go and join the church in Jerusalem, and they were still kind of afraid of him because he'd just been persecuting Christians. And they were like, no, we're good. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, you do your thing, but you don't know. We're not going to open the door. And it says Barnabas was actually the one who went out to him when he was kind of out in the gutter, if you will, and said, no, let me bring him in. He's the guy that vouched for him and said, hey, I just met this guy, Paul. you got to meet him. No, that was Saul that did all those things. He's a changed man. He's the guy who put his reputation on the line to bring Paul into the church. He, and then when Paul actually had his first missionary journey, Barnabas is the one that w- was with him. They sent them both out together. They were co-laborers. They were the dynamic duo. But see, what Luke talks about in Acts is that the band kind of gets split up. There's a moment where they decide to kind of go their separate ways. And Luke, he talks about it, but he talks about it so matter-of-factly. Like, he doesn't give us enough information. Because in our world today, we naturally, the way our church you know, often looks at the Bible, we see a lot of Paul. And so therefore, when we think about, okay, someone had a disagreement with Paul, then then they must have been the wrong ones. But we actually have no idea who was right or who was wrong. We can't actually articulate that because Luke doesn't give us enough information. Because Luke is a jerk. I'm just going to say, Luke is a jerk. He has this amazing moment. He has all the tea, all the information, this great moment of, of two major pastors fighting each other. And he doesn't give us hardly any info. It's almost like he just goes on from there and just talks about how they went on to spread the gospel. It's almost like he thinks spreading the gospel is the most important thing and not the fight. I think if the church in the world would learn that, I think it would change a lot of things in the church, to be honest. See, what he does share with us is that there's this guy by the name of John Mark, who was likely the cousin of Barnabas. 
had come along with them. And in Acts 13, it just says he left. That's it. They don't say anything. No information about what the fight was or if there was a fight. It actually just feels kind of innocuous. It's just like, okay, he just went on his way. He just went home. But actually, we know that something must have happened. Because we know he tried to rejoin and Paul didn't want to have that. So we know something happened in that that Paul didn't like. The way that it happened, the circumstances. We can read a lot into some of the things that were going on in those other chapters to kind of have an idea of what was going on. But whatever it was, Paul didn't like it. And so in Acts 15 it says this, After some time Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the new believers are doing. And Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul disagreed strongly. Since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with him in the work, and their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. It's interesting. When you read that phrase, disagreement was so sharp, it's actually... A Greek phrase that's the same Greek phrase that's used in Hebrews 10.24 when it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So it's talking about a, a, a conflicting moment that maybe is good or bad. I, I, in a lot of ways, I think of that phrase as iron sharpens iron, the Bible talks about. It's this grading moment where, yes, there, there's something coming out of this. That Yes, there's conflict, but there's some bigger purpose that's coming out of it. This isn't necessarily a knockdown, drag-out fight. This is more of iron sharpening iron that God's actually going to use in an amazing and incredible way. But the thing is, when I've read this, I've always had this thought. What would it have been like if they hadn't had the Holy Spirit in them and they had just been doing this in the flesh? I mean, put the, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Put yourself in Barnabas' shoes for a moment. You got this dude who nobody wanted to mess with in the church. And then you go out and you bring him in. You vouch for him. And then all of a sudden, there's this minor disagreement about who can come along on a mission trip. And Paul's like, no, he doesn't get a second chance. I mean, can you imagine Paul being like, no, he left us. We're not giving him a second chance. Barnabas, why would you even want to give him a second chance? You can imagine if Barnabas had been in his flesh being like, yeah, you're right, Paul. He did all that terrible stuff. We shouldn't allow him. We shouldn't allow him on the trip because of all the terrible, horrible things. You know, like the way he persecuted Christians and and helped to kill them. Oh, wait, that was you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and then, like, you know, I, I can't imagine why I would want to give anyone grace or a second chance. You know, it's just this weird thing I do with people like, oh, yeah, you, you hypocritical jerk. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, there, there'd be all these things. And, of course, Barnabas goes back to his, his life group, or really it's a death group when it's all gossip. And he says, you know, guys, can you believe what... Paul did, and they're, they're all agreeing with him. Yeah, yeah, can you believe it? And he goes back to the, the church in Jerusalem. They're like, oh, yeah, he's such a, you know, he talks about grace, but he doesn't want to give it. Oh, what a hypocritical jerk. And then they kind of close off from him. And then Paul does what he does best and writes a strongly worded letter talking about how terrible Barnabas is to the churches that they've been to, saying, you know, I, I've cast Barnabas to Satan to let Satan deal with him. And there's so many things that could have been done or said. But here's the deal. We have a record of none of that. Do you know why? Because these two men were filled with the Holy Spirit. They had Jesus working in them. 
which caused them to have humility, which caused them to be like-minded, even though they didn't agree on this one thing, they agreed that the gospel was most important. They didn't say, hey, let's just go our separate ways and not and not do anything else. Barnabas didn't go home and pout. He said, great, we're going to have, we have disagreement. We can't come to a conclusion. So great, we'll split up. And what's so amazing about that is that as you read the rest of Scripture, Paul talks about Barnabas. And he does it positively because most of Paul's letters are after this split would have happened. And the thing is, he talks about him positively. And then what's really crazy is he talks about John Mark. This guy that caused them to have a split. Paul talks about him in Colossians and says, listen... He is a fellow minister of the gospel. If he comes to you, welcome him. Three times in Paul's letters, he speaks positively about John Mark. And what's crazy is in 1 Peter, the book that we're talking about, in, in chapter 5, Peter says, and my, my friend and companion, John Mark. See, what we find is that's actually the same John Mark that by that disagreement... They actually, God was able to multiply them in a mighty way because Barnabas went on to Africa and many other places. But actually, if you go look at the Ethiopian Episcopal Church and many of the traditional church or the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, they will, they revere Barnabas in a mighty way because he was thought to be one of the first missionaries to really go deep into Africa. And then John Mark becomes a friend of Peter, who we're talking about here. And they, they become buddies, and, and actually he becomes an assistant to him. And he's actually thought to be the author of the Gospel of Mark, which was the first gospel. And it's often thought that that was written by Peter, because if you, for many reasons, my personal reasons are, if you look at the, the, the verse of uh, the, the Gospel of Mark, I mean, it's like the shortest, it gets right to the point, doesn't have any fluffy details, and it talks about all the dumb things that Peter does in graphic detail. So there's a lot of things that, that point to that, but a lot of people think that he was actually the source of that. And so out of this disagreement that should have been a knockdown drag out, that should have been a moment where feelings got exchanged, where I, I, I could just feel all these emotions as I read it, Suddenly, God takes it and does something amazing with it, multiplies their efforts. The first gospel that, that really inspires the other gospels comes out of that. Continents that hadn't been reached yet for Jesus get reached because two men were like-minded. They believed the gospel was the most important thing. They were sympathetic and humble. They had Jesus as the most important thing. So rather than throw stones, they were able to have a disagreement where they couldn't be around each other for a little bit. But they both had their eyes on the most important thing. And that gives me so much encouragement in my life because there's times where you might not agree with people that love Jesus. But if you're focused on, on going to God and telling Him about it more than you are about telling other people, God will still work with you, He will still use you, and the kingdom will grow. The problem is in the church when we don't do that, and we're more focused on telling our friends about what other people did, or throwing stones at other people, or being right with other people, we're not able to have a kingdom impact. Thing is, one of the biggest ways that Satan wants to get into your life is through your relationships. Whether it's in the church, in your family, in your workplace. How you have relationship with others, how you deal with conflict with others, says a lot about who's in control in your life. 
And so as we go throughout our week, when the moments come where things rub and the friction happens, are we looking like Jesus or are we looking like the rest of the world? Are, are we serving the one that rolled the stone or are we throwing the stones? How do we look in our life? Are we sympathetic with others? Are we humble in the way that we serve other people and the way we interact with them? Are we loving people with a tender heart? Are our, our hearts hardened towards others? Or do we have a tender heart to think, man, why is it they act that way? How can I love them? Even though I don't agree with them, how can I love them? And most importantly, when it comes, especially with our fellow believers, do we have Jesus as the most important thing in our life? Would you join me in prayer as we come before our God today? And God, one of the things I'm very well aware of is that you can't change anyone with a sermon. You can't change anyone with nice words. God, what changes us is your Holy Spirit working in us. And so, God, I pray for me and every person here that if there's anything in us that doesn't look like you, anything that's in us that doesn't look like the way you want us to have relationships, would you just convict us right now? Would you just break something in us so that we desire only to look like you in our relationships? God, you are so good. You're so amazing and incredible. God, thank you for the way you're working today. Your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Church, let's continue to worship together.